Do you enjoy listening to On the Ear but wish you could earn ASHA CEUs for it? Start today. SpeechTherapyPD.com has over 175 hours of audio courses on demand with an average of 19 new audio courses released each month. And here's the best part. Each episode earns you ASHA continuing ed credits. Oh, no, wait. This is the best part. As a listener of On the Ear, you can receive $20 off an annual subscription when you use code EAR21. Just head to SpeechTherapyPD.com to sign up and use code EAR21, E-A-R-2-1, for $20 off your annual subscription. You're listening to On the Ear, an audiology podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I'm your host, Dr. Dakota Sharp, AUDCCCA, audiologist, clinical professor, and lifelong learner. While I primarily work with pediatric cochlear implants and hearing aids, I am absolutely intrigued by the many areas of audiology and communication in general. This podcast aims to explore the science of hearing, balance, and communication with a variety of experts in hopes of equipping you to better serve your patients, colleagues, and students. So let's go. We are live and on the ear, brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. In healthcare, we can sometimes focus so much on our clinical care that we fail to realize the impact of the relationships we make with other professionals. In a previous episode of On the Ear with Dr. Danica Pfeiffer, we explored interprofessional practice and how it can lead to improved competency and care from clinicians. Today, we're going to look at another form of professional connection, mentorship, all with the help of our amazing guest. Dr. Riley DeBacker is a research audiologist and postdoctoral fellow at the National Center for Rehabilitative Auditory Research in Portland, Oregon. His research focuses on predictive statistical modeling of ototoxic hearing loss related to treatments for cancer and HIV. Riley also serves as the lead of the Risk Modeling Corps of the International Ototoxicity Management Group and a member of the AAA Guidelines and Strategic Documents Committee. Just a couple of financial disclosures. I'm the host of On the Ear and receive compensation from SpeechTherapyPD.com, and Dr. Riley DeBacker received compensation for his contribution to this presentation. Hey, Riley, I'm so excited that you're joining me. How are you doing? It's a great afternoon that is not super hot after a heat wave, so I cannot be mad. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's those first glimmers of almost fall that are then swiftly taken away from us as blistering (laughs) heat returns. Tell me, you're in Oregon currently? Yes, as I'm really glad you introduced me so I didn't have to stumble through NCRER and I can just say the acronym now. But yeah, I moved to Portland (laughs) about a year ago. Awesome. How are you liking it so far? I love it. The weather is much better than Ohio or sure. uh, Tampa where I did my externship. So 10 out of 10 would recommend. Oh, gotcha. Wow. So you've experienced like, you know, <laughs> each coast and the center of the country. That's that's pretty awesome. Not many people have had that experience. That's really cool. Awesome is a word. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess a lot of moves aren't necessarily so awesome. I do really want to talk a little bit, and I know we didn't really talk about this, but I do really want to talk about some of your research too. Maybe towards the end, if we've got some extra time, I'd love to hear more about what y'all are learning at the C-R-A-R, right? The (laughs) N-C-R-A-R. Got it. Got it. But today we're talking about mentorship because a while back I read an article you wrote and I looked into, it looks like you've done some research into mentorship for clinicians, specifically in audiology. And I'm curious what your background is, what brought you and drew you into researching this topic more closely? So I don't want to misrepresent myself. I haven't done any original research on mentorship, but I 
And some partners have presented a couple times on mentorship at some national meetings. And so we've been digging a lot into sort of literature from other fields and empirical work that's been done and sort of reapplying it to audiology. Because while I think audiologists are great and very unique as a profession, I do think there's some lessons we can learn from other places. So to set that aside first. That makes sense. And I think one of the names I saw in some of your previous presentations was another previous guest of the podcast, Dr. Gail Whitelaw. I think she had done some work with you on this before. Yes. Yeah. Gail and I worked with Ashley Hughes on a presentation. Wait, I think another, another previous guest on the podcast. Oh my gosh. (laughs) We got all of y'all. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So a couple of years ago, I knew Gail and Ashley both as kind of different mentors of mine. Gail was the clinic director or is the clinic director at Ohio State where I did my AUD and my PhD. And Ashley is the previous chair of the SAA advisory committee for kind of the National Student Academy of Audiology, which I am a former president of. And so through those kind of previous volunteer and school experiences, I'd met the two of them and gotten a lot of mentorship from them. And so when Ashley approached Gail and I and said, hey, I think it would be really good for us to do this talk on mentorship, Gail and I were both really excited. But I sort of had this hesitation where I was like, these are two very experienced audiologists that I respect a lot. Yeah. And there was sort of that really understandable hesitation of feeling like, oh, I don't know what I have to contribute to a conversation about mentorship. But as the conversation developed, and as I'm sure we'll get into here, I think that's a little bit of a problem in how we think about mentorship is this sort of one directional thing where you find a mentor who is going to like pour wisdom into you and you are this empty cup to become a mold of them. And instead, what we found when we looked into mentorship and when we started presenting is something we had called the circle of mentorship. So cue Lion King music that I'm sure we can't play, where we (laughs) talked about kind of how you are always doing bi-directional exchange when you're doing mentorship. So even when you're being mentored, there are things that you're giving back to a mentor probably. And also you are preparing to become a mentor in the future when you're, you're kind of doing that. And the turnover is a lot faster than we think. Even looking back to our graduate programs, I think a lot of us can probably pinpoint times where we learned things from older students in the program who were not kind of in any formal mentorship role, maybe, but gave us some really valuable wisdom and feedback. And that's sort of that cycle beginning already, where even as we gain a little bit more experience or even younger students or students working with professionals might have skills that they've picked up that we don't have. I have a student right now that has a lot more experience with bone implanted devices than I do. And so as we've been kind of chatting about that, there have definitely been pearls that I've pulled away, even in a formal mentorship relationship that I have with this student. That's great. That's great. And so I I like that we're already learning some key terminology here. So I'm hearing bi-directional mentorship, We've got the circle. Is it the circle of mentorship or am I misnaming that one? That is not a, a formal name by any means. No, no, no. We're, 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 <laughs> we're trademarking that one here. Okay. Awesome. So let's start then with, I guess, I don't know, where do you feel like is the best way to introduce this? Because I do, part of me wonders, I feel like I work hard to recognize the mentors in my life and maintain relationships, right? But I don't think at any point in training or in school were we taught explicitly 
you know, how to seek out a mentor and what does this relationship look like? So I guess I'm curious when you first engaged in this kind of mentor mentee relationship, what was your background going into it? Had you had any formal training in that? Were you just kind of winging it and hoping the mentor kind of guided you along? I wish that I had had all of the incredible wisdom that Ashley Gale and I passed on during that talk when I started my my mentorship relationships, obviously. Sure, sure. But I think when I look back at my experiences with mentorship and kind of starting those processes, I don't think I ever sat down and said, oh, hey, I'm going to seek out informal mentorship in a really intentional way. So... I had certainly had mentors that were professors, and there was an obvious sort of defined mentorship role that then we went on and exceeded. So for example, Gail was a professor of mine that then I went on and continued a mentorship relationship with after that. I don't think we ever sat down and said kind of, hey, Gail, these are things I would like from you as a mentor post this relationship we have had. And vice versa, she didn't sit down and say, these are things I would expect from you. But we learned in a lot of things we were doing and would recommend that people have versions of that. And we can get into that in a minute, certainly. But I also think that there are some formal mentorship relationships that we set up as a field. So for example, I had mentioned Ashley and I had initially met because she was a formal mentor that was set up for me through the American Academy of Audiology. There was a very kind of set way we were going to meet once a month. We were going to talk about kind of- Much more structured. Exactly. But then that relationship, again, sort of grew and changed over time. Neither of us are involved directly with the SAA right now, but both of us continue to work together on different projects and sort of mentor each other. There's a sort of gray area we can talk about where we go from kind of mentorship to collegiality and what that looks like. Sure, sure. And so I think there are lots of ways that in school, in intentional ways, we set up these sort of informal and formal mentorship networks, but we don't always label them that way. For example, I think if you talk to a lot of audiology faculty they would recognize, oh yeah, I mentor students. It is a formal part of my job to do that. But if you ask them what that looked like, they might have trouble articulating those particular activities. And similarly, I think if you asked students, they would say like, oh yeah, I have a thesis mentor, or I have a mentor for this thing. It is not so much a, oh, I have a a professional mentor that is my professor and they give me these things. Got it. Okay. So I see how we have this play between the formal and informal. And I feel like in the workplace, like having a job in a university setting, there's so much talk of mentorship. It's a lot more formalized there. It's like, you know, you've got to seek out your mentor and here are the rules for mentor mentee and how much you're supposed to be in contact. But I feel like, yeah, you're right. There are these unspoken rules for the more informal mentor mentee relationship. And I'm curious in the work y'all were doing and in the discussion, if you found, is there a pattern in who tends to first engage the more informal version of this? Do mentees tend to seek out mentors more? Do mentors find themselves a mentee? I will say I don't think there's any real empirical evidence for this. But I can talk to you a little bit about what I've heard anecdotally from a lot of people as we've been presenting on this and as I've kind of talked about this with some folks. And that's that I think often we really set up the paradigm where we tell people 
to find mentors. I can't really think of a time where I was ever told to find someone to mentor. I was never told sure. to find a mentee and seek that out, even as someone who is interested in faculty roles and kind of moving into mentorship. Mm -hmm. What we do hear all the time is find someone to kind of mentor you and pull you up. And here are the ways to do that. And I think a lot of the time we hear that in more informal contexts, right? Like we go to professional talks at conferences, or there might be an aspect of our program where we're told to seek those things out. But it's very seldom that we hear it in the other direction where we say, you will gain a benefit as a mentor in having a mentee. So go find one that makes sense. That's interesting. I think that makes total sense, right? It's, I guess it would be difficult from a mentor perspective to just say, hey, you, you seem promising. I'm going to take you under my wing. And then the mentee has no interest. But I do see, at least in my experience, I feel like a lot of it is mentee driven. And then, you know, good mentors see that they're filling that need, whether or not it's formally expressed, you know, they do kind of like take up the mantle and maintain the communication and maintain the relationship. So I, I want to dig into the audiology side of this specifically. But before we do, if we could just zoom out and talk a little bit more about like the meta of mentorship. And it sounds like the work you all did, you looked at how mentorship looks in other professions and in other disciplines. So I'm curious, what are some of the insights you learned from that research. So some of the things like in a mentorship relationship, like who really gets the benefit here? Like, is, is this better for the mentee? Is this better for the mentor? I'm assuming both can get some benefit, but I feel like we would always assume, you know, the mentee is the one gaining the knowledge and the wisdom and the experience and the connections and the networking. There's just so many aspects of this that are beneficial. So I'm, I'm curious what your work found about like how this is beneficial for people to participate in. I feel like as a new professional, this is my chance to sell everyone on the fact that everyone wins with mentorship. And obviously I might have a little bit of bias there, but I do think <laughs> this is your chance. Sell us on it. You got it. This is your moment. <laughs> the research really shows benefit on both sides, right? And I'm gonna start with the benefits to the mentor because I think people have less trouble articulating the benefits to the mentee, right? If I put sure. you on the spot right now, you could walk through and tell me like, oh, you're going to gain access to people's networks and yada, yada, yada. But when we think about benefits that a mentee gets, I'd like to say, or that a mentor gets from a mentee, I'd like to say first, kind of returning to that point about students teaching us things, arguably, probably to a lesser extent, all of the benefits we can think of a mentee getting from a mentorship relationship, a mentor can also get, right? A mentor can expand their network of contacts through a mentee. A mentor can learn new things. Something I hear all of the time from people is that they like taking students in their practice and doing clinical precepting, not just because it feels good to give back to the profession and you're educating the, the future of audiology, right? There is also an aspect where it keeps you on your toes to a certain extent. It's something I hear all the time, right? When I bring students in, they ask me why I do what I do. And I have to sure. think about that. I have to have a reason why this is my kind of standard operating practice inside of my clinic. I also get a chance to hear things that I might not hear otherwise. We all have CEU requirements on a CEU podcast. Obviously, I need to acknowledge that, but <laughs> we choose those things that we're seeking out. 
Students don't. They are exposed to the breadth of the profession, hopefully. And that means that if I'm someone that doesn't see a certain type of patient very often, or maybe I have a certain way that I see tinnitus patients, but then I have a student who comes in and says, oh, hey, in my tinnitus class last semester, we learned about this new therapy that seems to be really effective. Have you ever recommended that to patients? That might be the first time I've heard of that. That might be a really good opportunity for me in my practice that I wouldn't have heard about if I hadn't had a student because I might not have sought that opportunity out or I would have had to wait and see it on the schedule of 3 million talks at AAA and decide to go to it (laughs) instead of the happy hour. Terrible choices we're faced with, right? Exactly. And so there are those things that I think are kind of easier to think of. But if we really dig into some of the literature, some things that surprised me a lot is that mentors tend to make more money than people that are not in mentorship relationships. And I want to acknowledge there is no causation research there, right? We could say people who make a lot of money get sought out to be mentors. That's totally possible. But we do see that mentors indicate feeling more engaged with their work and with their profession than people who aren't mentors. It kind of tends to pull people back in. It can help to prevent burnout. And the more engaged people are, the more willing they might be to take on opportunities that allow them to get promotions, that allow them to move up within organizations, is one of the thoughts I saw kind of put forward in this literature. And so there are financial incentives, be they indirect, to mentorship that also translate to some really good kind of protective benefits to the profession, right? It's good for audiology if experienced audiologists that have a lot to offer don't get burnt out. And there's benefit to the profession in those experienced audiologists sharing that experience with younger audiologists, certainly. That makes complete sense. And I think I'm, I'm appreciative that you started with these points from the mentor's perspective because, wow, that was really insightful and something I had not considered at all. And I think that might be one of the best pieces of advice we can give to current students and current people in a potential mentee role or looking for mentors is don't be afraid to engage in those kinds of conversations with mentors. I feel like you know, sometimes the power dynamic clinically can be challenging and you might not want to challenge the way someone practices audiology. But the example you gave, I think, was perfect of just suggesting something you had recently learned about in a class or in a different clinical site and just seeing what kind of conversation that sparks because that might acknowledge to the person who is with you, wow, this, you know, this student's really bright. This student really cares about this specific, you know, aspect of audiology or care. So I think that's an amazing example of you know, both sides of this mentor-mentee relationship and how that can come about, I guess, in a way I didn't even think about. Really cool. And so, with the financial thing, your advice then was find as many mentees as possible. And <laughs> No, no, no. So, that is really interesting though. I, I think that's that's a really cool connection. And I do appreciate you pointing out how it benefits, you know, the entire profession. Because in the other episode, when we talked about interprofessional collaboration, you know, that obviously has ways of improving our profession beyond just, you know, the care you provide is more competent, but also, you know, just other professions understanding what we do. And I think we see something similar between you know, older generations who are mentors learning more about audiology through their mentee sometimes than through a CEU opportunity. So I think, I think those are really great examples and really, really cool. Okay. You kind of broke down some of those benefits to the mentor, anything outside the box for the mentee or things where you don't typically think of, but might be benefits of having that relationship from the mentee's perspective. I think a lot of the benefits to the mentee 
I found personally unsurprising, but I will also point out, I found myself in a position where I'm talking about this. So I took a lot of advantage of things. And so to just briefly hit on them, I think there are obvious advantages to being a mentee in that you get access to experience that you don't have, right? We learn a lot in school about clinical practice from the perspective of a research base. And then we go out into practica, we go talk to experienced audiologists to learn how to apply those things because evidence-based practice includes good clinical judgment, right? So we know that this is something that we learn quickly, hopefully, as we're learning and developing as young audiologists. But there's also, I think, a really big thing that we miss out on a little bit is thinking that when we seek out a mentor, they have to be everything, right? I need to find a mentor that is going to teach me how to be a great clinician and have the job that I want to have when I'm done and introduce me to these other audiologists that are going to be good connections for me and proofread my resume for me when I'm getting ready to apply for jobs and, 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 The trouble is if I go in with that expectation, especially if I don't talk to them about that, that can become really overwhelming really quickly. And that can become a not great mentorship experience. Sure. There's also the fact that, quite frankly, I think some of my best mentors have been really short-term mentors that helped me with one specific thing. Someone I think of a lot actually for this is Dave Jedlicka at the Pittsburgh VA gave the best how to get a job talk I've ever heard in my life. I went to JDVAC a couple of years ago. He gave a student session that was all about how to get a job. I reached out to him and I was like, hey, I feel like my resume is fine, but could be better. And over the course of a couple of weeks, we corresponded. He gave me some really great advice. And now it's something where I reach out to him periodically. We run into each other at conferences. We talk, we have a good collegial relationship. But the primary thing he did for me was Let me bounce some ideas off of him. Give me some feedback on my kind of documents I was using to apply to jobs that probably helped me land my externship. And we can kind of extrapolate out from there. It was a really short term thing. And it was feedback that I was already getting from some other people, but it gave me a new perspective on it. Sure. Wow. That's that's great advice too, to think of it as, you know, potential short-term mentorships that you don't have to be, you're not married to this person, right? Like you don't have to be stuck in this committed relationship for the rest of your life. And so to see opportunities like that, to make professional connections, there's a couple more meta points about mentorship I want to get to, but I think that leads me to a really important question I wanted to ask you about seeking mentors. So for those listening who might find themselves to be a little bit more uncomfortable approaching people to start relationships, whether that's networking or something like a mentorship, which feels a little bit more you know personal and you're kind of re- making me rethink, I was going to say long-term, but of course, I guess that's not necessarily the case, right? We can have different kinds of mentorships for different kinds of situations. But what advice would you have for those people who struggle to engage in these kinds of you know conversations that are about professional relationships? One of the biggest things, it reminds me a little bit about when I'm talking to, especially like undergraduate students about looking for AUD programs and things that way. And they're nervous about how to get started. One of the things I always remind them is it feels super cool when someone tells you, hey, I want to be you when I grow up. 
And I don't think every mentorship has to have that strong connection at its core. But I do think it's good for us to recognize as people seeking mentorship that like there's there's a little bit of a contact high somebody gets when you reach out and you're like, hey, you're really impressive and I would like to learn things from you. That feels good to hear, right? Like there's there's an ego boost. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's not like the whole mentorship relationship on its own, right? We have to have a thing to say after that. But I think that a lot of the time people hype these things up as, oh gosh, this person is going to be so busy. They're not going to have time for this. This is going to be inconvenient. But at the worst case, what you've done is give them a really nice compliment. And then next time you talk to them or run into them or have something else, that's a foundation that you've laid for that. And I don't know of anyone who has reached out to say, hey, I really admire you and would appreciate getting to talk to you a little bit more about this thing and has been completely shut down. And the response is, I never want to hear from you again, like lose my number. So I doubt you will be the first. And even if you are, that person would probably not have made a good mentor or is having a really Absolutely. bad day. So it's okay. <laughs> That is really reassuring. And I think that's a great perspective on how to approach the conversation. You know, I mean, it can be very mild flattery, but I can definitely see how that can lead to a great, you know, the start of a great relationship. And that is, I mean, I can just say from personal experience, the people that I've sought out as mentors were people that I did want to follow their career path in some way, or they had an interest in audiology that I saw them as much more of an expert in than myself. And I wanted to learn from them. So starting the relationship from a place of, wow, you are so good at XYZ or you have done so well with XYZ. I want to do that too. Can you show me how to do those things? I do think that's a really a great way to open up the conversation. I think that makes a lot of sense. So actually, I mean, I guess this is sort of back to the meta, but it, it kind of leads in from that. So now you've started this relationship with your mentor, but you mentioned the the circle or the cycle of mentorship where I guess, you know, you go into it as the mentee and then at some point you become a mentor yourself. That's how I'm interpreting the name off the top of my head, but I don't actually know what it is. So can you break down that concept for us? Yeah. So I think it is a looser concept than I would like it to be maybe a little bit, but <laughs> at its most foundational level, yeah, it's exactly what you described. Everyone that starts as a mentee becomes a mentor in some way at some point. And that looks different for everyone. If you feel really nervous about an activity that you associate with mentorship, there are probably lots of other ways you can be a mentor or provide mentorship that don't involve that activity that makes you nervous. Just to throw that out there for anyone who's worried to jump on the carousel because it's going to come back around to them. But the point being, when you set up to become mentored, you are positioning yourself, hopefully, to get better at the thing you're being mentored in. And at a certain point of getting better, there's going to be someone that is less good at it than you are that would like to get better at it and who is likely to ask you for help doing that. And that can be really local. It can be within your practice. So for example, I think about this in as basic a way as there's a new piece of equipment and you're getting really good at it and you're going and you're getting training in it. Then you come back and you train the other staff there. That's like a, a microcosm of the cycle of mentorship. I wouldn't necessarily call that activity mentorship, but it sort of illustrates the idea. And it's like the skills that you gained in that relationship are then coming to play in a different way in your job. Exactly. I think there's a second aspect of it too, where 
I was kind of alluding to this earlier. When you are getting mentored, you are giving things back and you are providing new information to the person that you are mentoring. And at some point, the goal of most mentorship relationships, right, is that you become more on a level. And so there's also a certain kind of circle of mentorship whereby at some point you are going to be in a more peer state with that person and that mentorship is going to become a lot more bi-directional. There are going to be skills that you have that your former mentor does not have and you two are going to be able to give back to each other. We don't often think about that as mentorship in the formal way, but I think it's a fundamental part of those kind of like collegial relationships we build as a part of mentorship where we get good at things and we establish ourselves and then we are able to give back those things that we have gotten good at. That makes sense. That makes sense. And I think it's challenging to imagine when you're currently in the middle of a, you know, a mentorship kind of relationship, it's hard to imagine that one day you're going to have that kind of dynamic with the person who's been guiding you and teaching you and answering your questions and all that stuff. But I do, I, I think you're right. I mean, it makes sense that it's a natural next step for these partnerships to to lead to a point that are more collegial and able to contribute back and forth. I'm hoping we're going to, and maybe this is a good time, like hoping we'll talk a little bit about some of our like personal mentorship journeys. It's so funny we're having this conversation because I can kind of like feel that in one of my closest mentorship relationships happening in like the last few weeks or so where she has been asking me a few questions and I'm like, wait a minute, I ask you these questions. It's not the other (laughs) way around. You you shouldn't be asking me anything yet, but I do have new insights now in in ways that I can contribute to that conversation. I don't know at all. And she still certainly knows more than I do, but there's ways that, you know, the work that I'm doing, she sees that it's different from the work she's doing. And there's ways I can contribute back to her now in ways that she's poured into me so much these last several years. So it's interesting that we're talking about this because I'd never really thought that I'd ever hit this, reach this point, you know, with my mentor. And now I, we're talking about it. I'm like, oh my gosh, we're right there. We're on the precipice of the collegial form of the cycle of mentorship. And I'm scared. I'm nervous. I don't want to come across like I know it all. So what do you have to say for someone in my position where you're getting nervous about seeing yourself more, not even just in that more horizontal relationship, but, you know, also I've been working with more, you know, audiology students and seeing myself more as a mentor in that position. How do you talk someone off the proverbial ledge of, I'm so nervous about being a mentor now, I'm worried I don't know enough to be this person? I guess this dips in a little bit to my personal experience with it. A cool part about this talk on mentorship that I gave with Gail and Ashley was actually getting to hear from the perspective of my mentors moments where they recognized our relationship changing in that way. And so that was a really cool part of that because I don't think, especially Gail Whitelaw is someone that has been practicing audiology longer than I have been alive. And so I don't think at any point I would be like, ah, yes, Gail and I, peers, are (laughs) on the same level and ready to go. Sure. But it was very neat because things that I had not ever really recognized as like, oh, these are things that I am giving to Gail so much as, oh yeah, we have lots of these long chats. When I was in grad school, I took a lot of coursework on teaching and kind of pedagogy and how to design good classes. And I would often talk about that with Gail while we were going through and I was designing a new class I was going to teach or whatever it might be. And I had never really thought anything of that, but it was interesting when we went to go give this talk because Gail talked about how, despite the fact that, you know, 
we had this mentorship relationship established for years, she had been feeling the direction of that start to change and like the orientation of that start to change. And it was something that made her very happy. And the reason I bring that up is that last point. There's a sense of satisfaction that I've heard from mentors in watching people they have mentored start to provide things back to them. Not because, oh, now I am reaping a benefit from this relationship that I've poured resources into, but because they are watching someone that they have poured into and invested in start to be in a place where they are really developing and blossoming and kind of becoming their own whatever the thing is. And that was really cool to hear for me because it was obviously, I mean, it was very cool to hear because it was very nice, but it was also very cool to hear because it was something where I think that not hearing that perspective from someone else, I would have felt really presumptuous to say like, ah, yes, these are ways in which I have mentored these mentors of mine, or these are ways in which I have given back to them. And so I have earned this in some way. And so at a certain level, developing yourself as a new professional, I do think becomes a little bit an aspect of valuing what you are bringing to the table and recognizing that and acknowledging that like, you're not being presumptuous or putting on airs when you say like, oh yeah, I have things to offer. Like I know things that people that are more experienced than me might not know because of my specialized experience or because of this experience I have had. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that's a great story to kind of illustrate that dynamic shift and who benefits from that dynamic shift. Obviously, it's both of you all, but I appreciate you sharing that. And I'm curious, so it sounds like, you know, Gail was a pretty amazing mentor for you. I'm curious, I mean, I'm sure you have other mentors and we can we can talk about them too, but I'm curious how that relationship started or if you've, you know, in talking to other people in your work with this, if there's been examples of how mentees, because we, we talked about how mentees kind of drive the relationship early on, how they, you know, started these mentorship connections, or if you have a specific example from one of yours. Yeah, I think for a lot of my mentorship relationships that have begun in person, I think it has felt easier, right? There feels to me or has felt to me in the past to be an easier script for, oh, I'm going to go to office hours and I'm going to ask this professor a question and I'm going to keep going back and annoying them till eventually they keep answering my questions and this becomes an expectation, right? But I think that the harder ones to start are ones where there's not that in-person connection, right? How do you start a relationship with a professional that you admire or that you want to learn something with who doesn't have any idea who you are and who you don't really know anything about? And the thing I want to establish first is those can be super valuable. I think we think about this a lot in research contexts, right? I do research 40 hours a week for my job. And so I think about this a lot. We constantly are building collaborations and reaching out to strangers that do similar work and saying like, hey, I read your paper. Do you want to work together on this thing? And there's sort of an expectation on the research end of the house that you're going to get that cold call and it might be in your interest and it might not be to develop some kind of relationship there. Mm -hmm. But I don't feel like we necessarily go in with that same expectation in a more kind of clinical or social context. So Ashley and I started working together because we got kind of formally paired up by a program. And sometimes those go great. And sometimes those go absolutely terribly. Ashley was not my first mentor in that sort of program. 
And she is the only one that I keep in touch with. And so when we're thinking about that, those are variable and those are a little bit easier, right? When somebody else is doing the work for you, I don't really have to sell you on on why or how to do that. But when it comes to you being the one that has to reach out and say, okay, hey, I'm interested in this. I think the mistake I hear most often from people is I don't know what to ask, right? Because it feels weird to be like, hey, I think you're really cool and impressive and hopefully nice. Would you like to mentor me? I have never personally received that email, and I'm not taking that as an offense on me not seeming cool and nice, but on that not being the most logical or good feeling email to send. And I think the the thing that is easier in those situations is to go in expressing what you actually want, because we've really hit on in about 30 different ways how mentorship looks different to different people. And so if you go and email someone out of the blue and say, hey, do you want to mentor me? They might have a completely different idea of what that means than I do. And now I think I'm asking for a new BFF that I'm going to text at 4 a.m. when I'm panicking. And they're thinking that we're going to like maybe get coffee next time we're both at a conference in person. (laughs) And those are wildly different expectations and can result in some really not great feelings if they're never clarified. And part of the reason I bring that up is actually when we were presenting on this, something that Gail really emphasized was just even setting up in mentorship relationships, how you're going to communicate can be so important. Something I had never really thought about was the idea of texting my mentors. I like, I text my friends. I don't text people for professional reasons, really. But Gail was talking about the fact that for some people, that had really been the primary way that she had interacted with them. It was, hey, I'm having this problem. I'm going to shoot you a text about it. Could we jump on the phone and talk about it for a couple of minutes? Or could we do this or that? And that was the primary set of interaction she had, really. It was kind of to help be a sounding board or work through situations on an as-needed basis. And then whatever else happened, happened. That's interesting because I feel like my closest mentor, that's our relationship is like a text phone call relationship. And it started that way. You know, she was a clinical supervisor of mine for a year and like we became pretty close in that time. And then after I left, it just started with a few questions in my first job. And then from there devolved into, you know, multiple times a week. Oh my goodness, what would you do if this, you know, crazy thing happened? And, you know, what is your advice here? So, and now that's, you know, been ongoing for years now. So I think it's really interesting the different ways that these kinds of relationships can manifest. You know, it's really interesting because there's a couple of professionals whose, you know, careers I've like kind of kept an eye on because they do work that really interests me or their career has had kind of a trajectory that I think is really cool and maybe something I want to try for. But I've truly never even considered just emailing them and saying, Hey, I think, you know, the trajectory of your career is really cool. Like, would you mind having a conversation with me about it? And maybe it doesn't have to be something as formal as saying, would you be willing to be a mentor to me? Maybe it is, right? It sounds like that that's not necessarily outside the realm of possibility. And a lot of people would be very open to that. But it also can just be as simple as striking up those kinds of conversations. And I think it's cool because I I do... Part of me has always wondered, like, what's this divide between, like, just networking and having a relationship with someone, like a kind of, like, you know, collegiate 
relationship with other people, collegiate, that's not the right word, collegiate, college, collegial relationship <laughs> with another professional versus like an actual mentorship where we have, there's like trust here. I ask questions. It's not necessarily just a, you know, let's get coffee from time to time kind of a thing. So you've given me some really interesting things to stew on for myself and I'm, I'm really grateful for that. So thank you. Just to jump into that really quickly, something that I think is worth emphasizing. I really like the way you kept using the word relationship there, because really this is a type of relationship. And I guess the reason I want to drive this home a little bit is I think of it almost like like dating relationships. Important caveat, please don't date your mentors. Mentors, please don't <laughs> date your mentees. I would like to spell that out. This is a metaphor. <laughs> that is important. <laughs> but in the same way that you don't like jump on Tinder and say like, Hey, do you want to be my boyfriend? Like you're like, Hey, do you want to go on a date? Do you want to do this certain prescribed activity? And at a certain point you reach like a critical mass and you're like, okay, I think this would be a good relationship to have Mm -hmm. with a mentor. You probably don't want to jump out the gate and be like, hi, would you like to enter into a committed long-term relationship with me? And instead might want to say like, Hey, I'm working on a blog post and I would really like your opinion on this. Do you mind taking a look at it? Or, hey, I am interested in making a career change. I'd like to do something that looks more like what your life looks like right now. Do you have a couple minutes to talk about that? Those are a lot more defined activities that are easy for someone to evaluate and say, yes or no, am I interested in doing this? than a really amorphous commitment that it's very easy to look at and think like, oh, there's no way I'm going to have time for that. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I, I think all of that is starting to line up for me and starting to think about this in a really different light. So I'm really grateful for you for explaining it in that way. We're kind of getting close to the end of our time. I did want to ask, anytime we start to kind of talk about a, a more specific topic like this, I do appreciate you know when our guests provide specific advice And earlier when we talked about the benefits, you kind of gave us the mentor benefits that we don't really consider as often before the mentee. And so I would ask for listeners who are maybe seasoned clinicians who haven't really engaged in any kind of mentorship before, maybe students have approached them or, you know, other clinicians have approached them and they've just felt too busy to like really invest in that kind of a relationship. Or maybe they haven't even noticed that someone was trying in the first place, right? To even start that kind of a relationship. What advice you would have for those more seasoned clinicians or, you know, mentors to be who haven't really seen themselves as a mentor before and how to maybe get involved in that kind of a relationship? So I have kind of a two-prong answer to that, and I think one and a half of the prongs actually answer your question. So apologies in advance. But one thing that I'd like to really emphasize is that we talked earlier about how mentors tend to burn out less than people who do not mentor others. An important caveat to that is your practice, wherever that is and whatever that looks like, should provide you with time to do that is something that is really supported by research. And this is true kind of across disciplines. It's true in business, in other healthcare professions. Practices that have people that are providing mentorship make more money and are more productive and successful on a lot of parameters than practices that don't. And again, chicken and egg problem potentially, but rolling (laughs) with that for a second, 
With that in mind, there are advantages to your practice. If you are mentoring students, it makes your practice look better. It makes me want to work there. It makes it easier to recruit people. You spend less time on HR and those efforts when you have fewer problems recruiting people and retaining people because they like their coworkers, because they know their coworkers, because they have these established relationships and they're happier and don't burn out, et cetera. Sure. So there are advantages to your practice that you should advocate for making sure that at least a little bit of your time is protected to do those things if that's something you want to do. That's great advice. Something I didn't even really consider is the time management aspect of it and how you can feel prepared to engage in this kind of thing if you actually have the dedicated time and mental capacity to do it. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, and now let's flip it and let's say students, early clinicians, or you know, even seasoned clinicians who see a role model and someone they want to interact with and learn from. I mean, we've talked about this a good bit, including our own like kind of personal experiences and engaging in this kind of thing. But what advice would you have for them if there's anything you know more general or more specific that we haven't really touched on yet? I think one of the best pieces of advice I would have is that there's not a thing that is too big or too small to be mentored on. I think a lot of the time we think about mentorship as, oh, I want to be able to give better presentations. So I'm going to find someone who I think gives really good presentations and ask them to mentor me on that. That's great. And that is a goal for a lot of people. And it's very reasonable. And lots of people like working with newer professionals and students and people that have less experience because they get, if you're a good presenter, you get asked to give lots of talks and you don't always have time to do that. And so bringing other people in helps make that more attainable. Hmm. But there's also really small asks where it's It might even be as simple as, I really want to get better at this soft skill that you seem to really excel at. And that could be to a more experienced coworker or a less experienced coworker. Kind of having an idea of what you want to be mentored on and how you and your mentor work out to do that is the foundation of a lot of successful mentorship relationships that I've heard. Sometimes it works to have this really amorphous thing where it's like, hey, I just think you're really cool and I want to learn everything I can from you and we're going to go back and forth and we're going to bounce off and it's going to be great. But a lot of the times it's something, something like that can grow out of this really specific, hey, can you show me how to do this thing and we'll kind of work together on it and this worked really well and now there's another thing that logically came up and, and we kind of grow from there. So don't be afraid to ask about small things. And don't assume that people don't have time. Let them make that decision for themselves would be my advice to people seeking that out. Yeah, that is really good advice. I do think that would probably be something that would keep people from even engaging in it in the first place is just being worried, you know, they're the leader in this thing in the field, you know, they're not going to have time to talk to me about this. It's just you have no idea what their passion might be right now is, you know, training the next generation of people to work in that way. So I think that's really good advice. I'm curious too, because I'm thinking about this more and more and I'm I'm just going to, you know, take the podcast hostage for a minute, just focus on myself here because you can just give me good (laughs) advice. So I feel like a lot of the mentorship relationships I've engaged with have all been kind of the first one you mentioned, the more amorphous relationship oriented, just like knowledge and I don't know, just like professional guidance, but very generalized, right? Not like hyper-specific to a certain need or career goal or anything like that. But you've really opened my eyes to how that's like a kind of a another great way that a mentorship can start. 
And I think you gave a great example earlier when you talked about the email to, oh, I forget the name of the, the gentleman who had the talk on landing a job. Dave Tedlick. Right. So I'm curious in those kinds of relationships, which I guess can, mentorships, I should say, which are, I guess, a little bit more formal than the like, hey, like, let's, I'll shoot you a text when I'm struggling with this thing also, but like, how's your life going kind of a thing. These more specific kind of mentorship relationships, what does that follow-up communication look like? Yeah, I think the real answer is super unsatisfactory because it's it depends, right? It's going to look different for every person in the same way that like every other kind of relationship we have varies. Even the same kind of relationship we have with different people looks different. Same way with mentorship. The way a mentorship relationship ends or transitions is going to be different for different people. The way that I interact with Gail and the way that I interact with Ashley are completely different. I really value both of those relationships. They are friendships a lot more than kind of the mentor-mentee relationship that I had in the past. But both of those are relationships where I'm still getting a lot out of it. There are also previous mentors where we've kind of started, we've had this core relationship, and now it's sort of like a, we'll check back in as needed. Like, thank you so much. I feel like we both got what we needed out of this. And this this chapter has kind of been put on pause. And I'll talk to you next time I've got a project that's coming up. Sure. That was one of my questions, actually, was going to be like, how do you see mentorships usually like ending? And I think that's a good example, right? It doesn't always have to be this lifelong commitment to one another. It can sometimes just end the way it ends. And it's not necessarily over, but something you can revisit and kind of the relationship changes over time. And I think that's kind of been one of the big things we've taken that I've taken from this conversation is that kind of we're back to it, the cycle (laughs) <laughs> or the circle of mentorship and how that plays out. And I think that's a great example. It's a great visual for it. And a reminder for people in the way that you engage in mentorship might not be exactly what you thought it was. And it's certainly something that will change with time. Speaking of time, we don't have very much left, but we do know we have a little we have a little bit of time here. I'm dying to hear more about your ototoxicity research and some of the work you've done there. I don't even know, I don't think we've really done an episode on ototoxicity. So maybe we'll have to bring you back if you're interested <laughs> for a future episode to talk about something completely unrelated to mentorship. But I guess maybe not, because maybe you kind of got into this role thanks to a mentorship relationship. But with, you know, only 10 minutes or so to spare. Do you want to share a little bit about the work you're doing in terms of ototoxicity research? So I will absolutely tie this into mentorship. The reason I got into ototoxicity research is because I was taking my like freshman intro to communication science and disorders kind of class. And the person who would eventually become my PhD advisor gave this guest lecture on ototoxicity. And I just thought it was fascinating. It was so interesting to me how drugs could affect hearing in a way that had nothing to do with their intended impacts. And so I, at the end of that guest lecture, walked up to the professor and said, hey, do you need any help in your lab? And I started as like an unpaid research assistant. And then I stuck around for nine years and he could not get rid of me. But (laughs) (laughs) that's sort of how I got onto this trajectory. It was really that sort of like, hey, this seems really cool. Could I come learn more about it? kind of beginning of a mentorship relationship. Dr. Eric Bielefeld was that guest lecturer. He is one of my greatest mentors. I owe all kinds of things to him, as I'm sure 98% of former PhD students will say about their mentors. <laughs> but 
he is fantastic and is the reason I use dude so much in my vocabulary now. 10 out of 10 would recommend. <laughs> Very cool dude. <laughs> so mentors not only are shaping our, our knowledge and our career trajectories, but a little bit of our vocabulary too. I think there's some truth there. <laughs> exactly. There's a whole separate study to be done there. I did not see that in the literature when I was looking before. <laughs> We'll have to circle back to it. So what are some of the things that you're looking into more specifically or some of the more recent research you've been doing? Yeah. So most of my recent publications relate to my dissertation work that I did, which was on some models essentially looking at how drugs used in the management of HIV and the prevention of HIV impact hearing. And if mice are to be believed it seems like there's a decent risk of hearing loss associated with some of these drugs. So my currently under review grant submission is trying to look at some folks who are HIV positive and receiving these drugs and some folks who are HIV negative and receiving these drugs and how those drugs are impacting their hearing over time, essentially. That is fascinating. That's really, really interesting. Something I'd never even considered when it comes to ototoxicity. I know we tend to think of like, you know, the mycins, the cisplatin, you know, the more typical like chemotherapy and antibiotics, but that's so interesting and something I hadn't considered before. I'm curious, the type of hearing loss you saw with mice, was that more of a gradual hearing loss? Were they more prone to sudden hearing losses? What kind of changes did you see? These changes in adult mice tended to be sort of the gradual hearing losses that you see with a lot of the milder ototoxins. Something that was a little bit interesting about these antiretrovirals is they seemed to not exclusively or even primarily affect the high frequencies, but I shouldn't dive too far into that because I think that's a very early finding and I don't want to give people the wrong idea. But a thing that was arguably more interesting, one of the major strategies, the World Health Organization, most public health organizations have goals to end HIV by 2030 or a similar near-term date. And a major cornerstone of those plans is preventing new HIV infections primarily. Mm, sure. And there are two kind of strategies that I looked at a lot. One is called pre-exposure prophylaxis, where people who are at high risk for contracting HIV take typically daily pills in order to prevent HIV from kind of taking hold in the body, so to speak. And the other kind of major prevention pathway that I looked at is actually mother-to-child transmission of HIV. So looking globally, just over half of people living with HIV in the world are women, and about 70% of those women are of childbearing age. So there is a pretty significant concern of an HIV-positive mother passing HIV onto her children during pregnancy and childbirth. And so the most public health organizations recommend the consistent use of anti-HIV drugs, essentially, to prevent that transmission. And it's incredibly effective, which is very exciting. But the research in mice, and mice are not people, seems to indicate that there is risk of hearing loss associated with that, or that's what my research seems to show. And so a kind of future direction that I'd like to go with that is really looking at that in people. Something that's been done up to this point has primarily been looking at how those children do on newborn hearing screenings. Mm -hmm. and my research seems to indicate that actually the outer hair cells don't seem to be affected 
So a lot of newborn hearing screenings that include OAEs would be unlikely to catch these hearing losses. And that might be why in some of the literature, we don't see a lot of this risk, but that requires a lot more work. I want to be clear that these were not clinical studies. These were studies sure, sure. and in mice, but could indicate that there's a couple million children a year that are potentially at risk for hearing losses that we're not catching. That's such an interesting topic. And I'm so excited to hear more about your work in the future and to see where it takes you because that certainly sounds like something we need to be exploring more. And yeah, just understanding the mechanisms of this hearing loss and preventing the risk, you know, preventing it if we can and understanding the risks of these medications is just so important. So I'm really grateful you're doing that work. That's really, really cool. And of course, in the future, if you ever want to come, I was thinking about doing like something more ototoxicity, like a breakdown, because I do feel like that's something we don't I know I didn't have, you know, an entire course dedicated to that. It was like a subsection of a course in grad school. And then now I don't even see too many. I mean, I work, you know, primarily with cochlear implants. And so it's not too often that ototoxic drugs lead you all the way there, although it does happen sometimes. So something I feel like is sort of a blind spot for me clinically, and I want to learn more about. So if you've got any recommendations for anybody, or if you want to come back yourself, of course, you're welcome to. I wanted to compliment you because you, you've you got the podcasting voice locked down. <laughs> I'm sure we're going to get some comments about you just coming to take over my job because you're just crushing the... <laughs> The radio host voice. I'm loving it. We are definitely coming up on the end of our time. I'm so grateful for everything you've shared. I'm curious if there's any parting wisdom, whether it's, you know, just some some advice you would give, whether it comes to mentorship or just career related things, anything else you want to share with our listeners? I guess my parting advice for mentorship is really to shoot your shot. I think the biggest thing that prevents mentorship relationships from developing is not asking the question to start with. And that the worst thing somebody's going to say is not right now, usually for most folks or, or nothing because they miss the email in their inbox if we're being very honest. So <laughs> shoot that email out, try it out. And for a lot of the time, I think both of us shared examples during this podcast about ways it worked out really well for us after kind of shooting that shot. I encourage folks to do it. If you have specific questions about how to do it, you want to run a draft of your email by me, I'm happy to micro-mentor you <laughs> in mentorship emails. So shoot it my way. That sounds like a new term to be coined and studied is the idea of micro-mentorship. So I'm looking forward to the next paper that you put out <laughs> on micro-mentorship and your experiences with it. But thank you again, Riley. This has been an awesome conversation and one that I truly have learned so much from. So I'm really grateful for you for taking the time. And now I feel like I have officially completed the trifecta, Riley, Ashley, and Gail being on on the ears. So we've definitely got all of the best of the best on here. So thank you again so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Dakota. It's been great to talk to you. And that's all for today. Thank you so much for listening, subscribing, and rating. This podcast is part of an audio course offered for continuing education through Speech Therapy PD. Check out the website if you'd like to learn more about the CEU opportunities available for this episode, as well as archived episodes. Just head to speechtherapypd.com slash ear. That's speechtherapypd.com slash E-A-R. E-A-R.